Education is key to fostering creative and innovative thinking for a more sustainable world, from environmentalism to gender studies and everywhere in between. She Explores is proud to partner with Oregon State University's eCampus, which offers over 70 different online programs to encourage a new generation of environmentalists and advocates without limiting your outdoor explorations. We're inspired by graduates like Tracy Campion, whose adventure-seeking ways led her to Mexico, and eventually the decision to finish her psychology degree online with Oregon State and a new purpose as a small business self-employment coach. Learn about Oregon State eCampus's nationally ranked online education and choose from over 70 programs by visiting ecampus.oregonstate.edu slash explore to find the program that's right for you. That's ecampus.oregonstate.edu slash explore. I'm Gail Straub, and you're listening to She Explores. I was looking for a synonym for the word softness. And literally, in the list of synonyms on Google, one of the words was womanishness. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I shouldn't laugh, but it's like, I thought maybe it would say feminine, not like woman, womanishness. No, literally, like one of them. So there's a list, synonyms, unmanliness is the first one on Google. Wow. Wow. Yeah. And then, you know, and it does have words like effemineness, um, but sissiness is also one of them, womanishness. These are the words, these are the synonyms that we have for softness. Yeah, super interesting. And that's just a, a basic Google search. But, you know, that kind of gets into the, the language of bias, which I think is super important to talk about. You might bristle at the idea of softness being equated with being a woman. For me, I think about mountains I've climbed by myself, my legs growing stronger over time. I think of the hard scrabble trees in the alpine zone, the way they soften in the fog, blending into the view, a beautiful blanket of hills. I know I am sometimes soft, sometimes tough, often both at once. It's not so much the word that I might bristle at, but the limit it imposes, not just for me as a woman, but for everyone else on the gender spectrum. We talk a lot on the show about striving to make the outdoors a more welcoming, inclusive place for all, regardless of gender, race, size, or ability level. But we get in our own way sometimes. On today's episode, Ash Hobbs helps us examine some of the constraints we place on ourselves and others, even when we don't realize it. Let's get to know Ash. But before we jump in, a quick note about sound quality. I interviewed Ash over Skype. Ash was outside, which is lovely. You could hear birds and insects in the background. You can also sometimes hear a dog barking, construction noise, and also the connection wasn't always as strong as it could have been. So you might have to turn your volume a little bit up at times when you're listening, but it is totally worth it. Okay, on with the show. Well, something I've realized is that you have to be very proactive in your self-care. You can't be lackadaisical about it. So for me, one thing that I do just in the course of my regular day as I'm going about my job, I get an hour for lunch and I go outside. Even if it's just, and I try to spend almost that entire hour outside if I can. Um, Sometimes I'll just walk around the city, but there's a like small park right behind where I work. It's like a small urban park and sometimes I'll go back there and just walk. You know, sometimes I'll walk around the city or whatever, but I make it a point to get outside every day. Does this sound familiar at all? It does for me. 
especially when I worked in finance. I'd eat my lunch quickly at my desk, and I'd take the rest of the time in motion, in the sunshine, sometimes walking over the Charles River and back, just to gain a little perspective. Ash's job is different, though. Ash works in the criminal justice system. In terms of what I currently do, I am a deputy court clerk, specifically a court reporter. And so what that means in practice is that I go into courtrooms with the judges and record the hearings that are happening. I work in circuit court, which is a court of record. And for people that are not familiar, circuit courts hear felony cases. So they have judicial jurisdiction over felony cases, um, but then they also hear appeals from lower courts like general district courts and things like that. My average day, on any given day, I could be in a murder trial or I could be in a plea agreement hearing for possession of methamphetamine or possession of any other drug. Specifically what I do other than recording things is let's say we have a jury trial for a murder hearing. I would be the one that logs and marks all the evidence as admitted to the court. I would also be the one that swears in the witnesses and the one that arraigns the defendant. And arraignment is the formal process by which you are asked, the charge against you is read to you, and then you are asked how you plead to that charge. And so that is what I do professionally. How I got there is um, sort of had, you know, pretty much just an inherent interest in the criminal justice system and So I have three degrees in it. I have an associate's, a bachelor's, and a master's in administration of justice or criminal justice with a certified crime analysis certification. Ash worked as a 911 dispatcher before working in the court system. Inherently, there's a lot of stress wrapped up in these positions. I've sat in court where verdicts and murder trials were were read, and you cannot really unless you've ever sat in a room or like personally had that experience, you cannot really understand like the emotional tension that exists in those experiences. And so it can be very heavy. It it can be a lot to take on. Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, I think that's part of it. I think that's why you have some of the, the burnout rates that you do. Um, In the case of 911, nobody ever calls 911 because they're having a good day. Okay. That's not why people call. They call probably because something bad has happened. And you do, you do take, you know, some minor calls in that field. But for the most part, people are calling 911 because it's an emergency. It's a critical situation. And, you know, in my court, which is circuit court, people are there because they're facing serious felonies. And I don't know if you understand all the collateral damage that having a felony on your record does, but it has huge impacts for your entire life. And so there's a lot of, um, I guess, heaviness in fields like this, in fields like social work and, and, and things like that. So Ash steps outside whenever possible where they live in southern Virginia. I don't think that human beings are meant to spend all day in fluorescent lighting. But especially, you know, in a situation where, you know, maybe I'm on a break from a 10-hour murder trial or something like that it's even more important for me to kind of get outside and find these like little pockets of peace. And I think when people think of self-care, a lot of times they think of like large things like, oh, I'm going to take a vacation or I'm going to go get a massage. But self-care can really be like just taking five minutes out of your day to find a quiet spot and just sitting 
and just being quiet and being with your thoughts and checking in with yourself. And I think also asking yourself what you need. So, you know, for me, if I've seen something that bothered me during the day or if I'm feeling kind of heavy or emotional about something, it's really like creating that time to like sit with that and then ask myself, what do I need? What's going to make this better? For me, that answer is usually going to be going outside, doing something outside. Um, And that could be as simple as what I'm doing right now, talking to you, which is, you know, just sitting outside on my trek light blanket or, you know, throwing up my hammock. My wife and I do this a lot. Uh, We'll just throw up hammocks behind the house and read. It could be kayaking. Personally, I love to kayak. That's like my version of church. I love it. I love to be outside. I love to be on the water. So it could be something like that. It could be fishing. But that's usually where I'm going to find relief. What is it that you particularly love about kayaking? I I have no idea. Just the first time, the first time I ever did it. I wish I could give you an eloquent answer to that question. I really do. But the first time I ever did it, I was just like, I love this is amazing. I love it. But with that being said, I love all things water, swimming, kayaking. I've tried paddle boarding, but I'm not very good at it. Um, But if I can be on a water or on a body of water, I will. Yeah, I think for me, it's like, what I like about swimming or or being on water is the perspective shift. The difference between being even on the edge of the water to being in the water. It just there's something about like the bigness that I can feel like within a body of water looking out or like the perspective that I can get that I wouldn't always get from from shore if if that makes sense. <laughs> it does. It does. It absolutely makes sense. No, I get it. I like I feel that way. So my wife and I spent our honeymoon we spent a month living at the in Rodanthe, North Carolina, on the Cape Hatteras National Seashore. And really large parts of that are undeveloped. Um, and it's just this, like, really vast coastal land. And sometimes, like, you're just sitting there, and it's this endless, vast ocean. And you're like, I don't know. You, you realize your insignificance in the overall scheme of things. I was thinking, when I'm in that space, when I'm in outdoor spaces, natural spaces... What is really happening for me mentally is that I am developing an awareness and an appreciation, a gratitude for the world around me that I don't have otherwise when I'm disconnected from that. I don't feel that same gratitude when I'm sitting in my office every day. I'm not as aware of my environment in that way. You know, but if I come out in nature and I'm I'm photographing something or I'm looking at a scene and, you know, you're surrounded. I don't know. But if, if you've been in some natural landscapes, I've been in places that just everywhere you look is beautiful. It's like overwhelmingly beautiful. And it's all natural. It's not created by man or, or anything like that. And so when I'm in those spaces and I'm in that mindset, I'm looking at those things in a different way. Like I'm not just seeing it. It's not just something that's in front of me or something that's around me. It's something that I'm actively experiencing and engaging with. The shift of perspective that Ash gains from immersing in nature is key to preventing burnout, and it helps nurture active and creative thinking. Ash did their graduate thesis work on racial and gender disparities in criminal sentencing. And a very much related interest for Ash is the concept of implicit bias. Ash is going to walk us through it, but one way I understand it is to think about what your understanding of water might be if you spent your whole life standing on the edge of a lake and never dove in. You just have the one perspective. My 
views on implicit bias have been really heavily informed by reading the work of other people. Um, and I'm not sure if you're fam familiar, but Dr. Jennifer Eberhardt, um, she wrote a book called Biased. She's a Stanford professor and researcher, and um, I think her definition of this is probably the best. And she defines it as the beliefs and feelings we have about social groups, um, and I'm going to put a parenthesis here, that could be LGBTQ people, people of color, that could be something as simple as men, women, hikers, it doesn't matter. Any social group of people, those beliefs and feelings we have about these social groups can influence our decision-making and actions even when we are not aware of it. And that's the important part. That is the implicit part of it is the lack of awareness. So for, I guess, for example, when, you know, hearing you say hikers, I feel like one of the conversations that's been had for a while within the outdoor community is the fact that, like, a lot of times people, if they think of a hiker, they think of, like, a cis white male, <laughs> you know, or they think about a cis white woman. And that is really harmful to to other people who also identify as hikers. Yeah, it absolutely is. And that's a, that's a great example of implicit bias. So uh, a good example of this, I was reading recently, and I can't remember where I saw it, but I was reading recently um, about an African-American man that does a hiker and things that people, other hikers had said to him that he had encountered on the trail. And uh, one of them was, oh, I, you know, I didn't know that African-American people or black people hiked or, you know, things like that. That's an example of implicit bias because you just think that's not the way that you conceptualize hiker when you think of the word. Mm. And it can be really hard to break down your implicit biases partially because people don't want to believe that they have them? Well, okay, so this is the way that I think that it functions. So I think it's a function of self-concept and belief systems. So, for example, I can be an LGBTQ person. I am an LGBTQ person. And I can absolutely believe in LGBTQ equality. But I can still hold biases against LGBTQ people. And so I think a lot of times when when we think, well, like when you hear the word bias, you think, well, no, like I can't be biased. I, I, I'm actively anti-racist or I'm, you know, actively pro-LGBTQ. I'm an ally, that kind of thing. So how could I be biased? I'm not biased. And so you automatically reject the idea that you can. But the interesting thing about implicit bias is that it's not mutually exclusive. You can absolutely be like pro-LGBTQ or a member of the LGBTQ community and still hold biases against other members of the LGBTQ community. And a lot of times those function as stereotypes. So just like um, you can be a woman and have internalized misogyny. Correct. Or like you can be a man and think, you know, I'm all for equality in the workplace and, and things like that. But then if you're making a, hire, a hiring decision, you're more likely to hire a man for a leadership position, things like that. Let's go back to that hiker metaphor. Based on what we've internalized about what it means to be a hiker from media and our upbringing and other influences, we might behave differently around a person if that person doesn't dress like, look like, or behave like what we think of when we think of being a hiker. And we might not do this intentionally. We've talked on this show about what it means to be a solo woman on the trail. We've talked about listening to our guts when it comes to safety. But what are our guts really saying? And why are they saying that to us? Part of the way that you figure out what your implicit bias is, 
is by asking yourself questions, is like really examining these associations that you have. Um, so many of us don't actually take the time to do that. And that's a, our brains are hardwired to help us navigate life and to be on autopilot and to operate unconsciously. One of the best examples of this I think I've ever seen is uh, Dr. Nicole Lapira, the holistic psychologist on Instagram. She always uses the example of, have you ever been driving and you're driving your car, maybe you're leaving work and you're coming home and you get home and you have no idea how you got there? Mm. Yeah, like you've been totally on autopilot the whole way. We live a lot of our lives in this headspace. And that's great. It helps us function, right? Because your brain's ability to do that got you home safely when you were driving that car. But we're also always doing like threat assessments or just general assessments of our environment in this same way on an unconscious level. We navigate work on an unconscious level. We navigate our personal relationships on an unconscious level. And this is where you really see implicit bias come in, in that split-second decision-making. Ash wanted to clarify that it's not implicit bias that keeps us safe, rather unconscious cognitive processing that helps to protect us. But in doing so, it also opens up the door for implicit bias to creep into our split-second decision-making. So when we're on autopilot, these quick judgments can be harmful. This plays out daily, whether you're on the trail or walking through your neighborhood. We'll learn more from Ash after this. Peak Suns makes gentle, plant-based skincare products to help everyone look and feel their best, indoors and out. My Ravel teammate Tori Duham has a great tip for treating yourself to a little self-care during this pandemic. I have gotten really into using the skin therapy oil that comes from the Power Repair series. The reason I've been loving it is because I've learned about face massages. <laughs> It's just kind of like taking the, the four fingers of your knuckles and doing these glides across your face that are mostly up. If you just have enough oil on there, it just really like moisturizes your skin and locks any moisture after having washed your face. If you do it just all over your face, it kind of it like naturally uplifts your your skin and it gives you a really awesome glow. And I'm just I don't wear makeup, so this is like my version of making my face feel ready for the day. Okay, I'm definitely going to give that a try tomorrow morning. Peak Sense makes affordable plant-based skincare for all skin types. Get 20% off your first purchase by heading to peaksense.com and using code EXPLORE20 at checkout. That's P-E-A-K-S-C-E-N-T-S.com and code EXPLORE20 at checkout to get 20% off your first purchase of Eddie Peak Sense plant-based skincare products. We're back. Before the break, we talked about quick judgments. Ash explains that the words we use to identify people play a big role in these quick judgments. They're like shortcuts. You know, we impute layers of meaning into words, value judgments into words. And so a lot of times you'll have words like criminal or thug, and automatically you have an emotional reaction to that. You have a value judgment to just that word. And I think part of really examining your own internalized biases is really sitting with what those reactions are without judging yourself. It's just okay. Like, so maybe I hear the word criminal and I'm like, Oh, like, you know, that's a scary word to me. And, and I, I, you know, ask myself a little bit deeper. Well, what do I perceive of 
a criminal? Like, what does criminal look like to me? I mean, I did do this one in my classes, and almost always, in terms of gender, a criminal is a man. Almost mm-hmm. always. Um, people very rarely conceptualize women as criminal. But, you know, then some other things that are really important to examine, and I wanted to be sure to touch on them in this conversation, is intersectionality. That's very important. So it's not always just a function of gender or race. It can also be a function of social class. You can have, you know, a bias of social class. So, like, for example, and the best example of this is when you think of, like, white-collar crime, right? Like, there are tons of white-collar criminals that have done horrible, egregious things environmentally, but also in terms of, like, loss of human life or injuries to people. But we don't perceive of people. Like, if you—are you familiar with any of the Enron scandal— uh, yeah, I am. I used to be an accountant, so we learned about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I learned about it in grad school. Yeah, the Enron scandal is notorious in many circles for many reasons. But, you know, from a criminal standpoint, a lot of what these CEOs and things were doing, very illegal. Uh, insider trading, things like that, super illegal. But we don't tend to perceive people like that as criminal. Hmm. And it can be it can be something as simple as the way someone is dressed. Like... For example, if you see someone, um, and this happens to me a lot, so I am heavily tattooed. I have a full sleeve and a half sleeve, several visible tattoos, but when I'm at work during the day, I'm very dressed up, you know, long sleeves, typically wearing a tie, um, and so nobody sees those things. And it's Mm -hmm. funny because I can notice these, like, difference, the difference in reaction to me, like, when, you know, I'm just kind of casually out and about in a t-shirt versus when I'm dressed up for work. And there's, there's not a, I wouldn't say that it's like a significant difference, but it's definitely like a subtle difference in the way that people treat me or approach me just based on those two things. In the past, when I've, you know, asked students and other people socially to kind of give me a, a description of a criminal, one of the things that people tend to associate with criminality, like visually, is tattoos, the presence of tattoos. But it can also be, you know, other indications of, outward indications of things like poverty what we perceive someone that is quote unquote poor or impoverished, what we perceive they would look like. Um, Intersectionality there is, is very important. These judgments have downstream implications. Ash and I talked about how we tend to distance ourselves from identifying with criminal behavior. Even say if you smoked pot in college in a state like New Hampshire, you've engaged in a criminal activity, but you might not necessarily want to call yourself a criminal. That distancing reminded me of my own reaction to the racist incident between a white woman, Amy Cooper, and a black birder named Christian Cooper in Central Park. I know my gut reaction when I first saw that video was to want to distance myself from that woman, but I then realized it was like more valuable for me to think about what I had in common with her so that I could like you know, just kind of sit with that and think about it and think about how I could change my behavior going forward or just not have that immediate distancing because, I don't know, that doesn't change anything. It just keeps you in your bubble and and other people in their bubbles. And it keeps you in your, your echo chamber. But, you know, I'm glad that you brought that up because one of the things that I wanted to really talk about, too, was that we talk about the criminal justice system and we think about the criminal justice system and racial disparities and things like that. You know, we often think or only think, of police or prosecutors or judges, but Mm. a lot of the initiation 
into the criminal justice system is calls for service. And what I mean by calls for service is, and I used to see this all the time when you worked in dispatch, is there's a suspicious person in my neighborhood. And when you question further, okay, well, can you tell me what they're doing that's suspicious? I, I don't know, just something about them's not right. And you would get calls like that, and you're like, well, you know, and, and as a dispatcher, you're trying to assess the safety of the situation. Yeah. You know, if this person is suspicious, what are they doing that's suspicious? Um, you know, what do they, what do they look like? What are they wearing? It, and these are not, these questions are designed to literally just be for safety and identification. But a lot of times when you ask people these questions, they can't give you really a direct answer. I don't know. He just, I've never seen him here before. And he just, he just looks funny or, and it was always men. I, I think I only took one suspicious person call about a woman and that was an exceptional circumstance, but you know, it would just be like people through the neighborhood. And that would actually even sometimes be people that were working legitimately for companies in the neighborhood, like companies like AAP. And they would be like, I feel like they're very suspicious. I mean, he's, he's in an AAP truck, but I just, I don't know that he's with AAP, you know, things, yeah, like things like that. And so I think one of the things, and this is really, really important. So if you come across a situation like the Central Park situation, um, and something about it seems off to you, before you just immediately think, I need to call the police because this seems off to me, maybe the better question, if the situation is not immediately dangerous, is to ask yourself, what about this seems off to you? And if you can't clearly articulate a reason, then maybe you need to think about it a little more in depth. I've learned from Ash that the really insidious thing about implicit bias is that it's ingrained. It takes a lifetime to unlearn. But it's always worth questioning the associations we have about groups of people, whether it's due to their race, class, gender, or hobbies, like birdwatching. Uh, it's changed the way that I see the world completely. Like a few weeks ago, this is a good example. So right now I'm shooting uh, what I am calling the Southern Summer Series or the Southern Farm Series. I'm debating on what to name it, but I was like, just looking at the textures around me, which is not something I would, I would not normally be doing if I wasn't photographing things. I was looking at the textures of all these things around me, the grasses, the texture of the wood fencing, the you know, texture of tree trunks, things like that. And I was like, thinking about how to convey the beauty of those things simply. These are very simple things. Um, and I was thinking about how to translate how I was seeing those in person to an image. And I shot a series of really, really beautiful images that day. But that's what I mean by cultivating and developing appreciation. So when I'm photographing something, I'm literally looking for the beauty in it. At the start of the episode, we heard about how Ash recharges by spending time outside. Photography is another way that Ash feeds their creative side. Ash doesn't just shoot landscapes, but finds beauty in the everyday things we sometimes overlook. And, and that could be a vast landscape, which sometimes it is. But oftentimes, like, there's really small beauty around you every day, all around you. It could be, you know, there's a the park that I walk in sometimes at work. There's a tree that has these, like, gorgeous blooms on it. And you can, it's so easy to just walk by those in an urban environment and lose them. But if I'm photographing something, I'm, I'm looking at that and I'm noticing the beauty of it. And I'm noticing the way that 
like the colors and, and the vibrance and, and things like that. And so for me, when I'm photographing things, it's when I'm the most in touch with my humanity and with the natural world around me. We'll hear more from Ash about how they're using photography to help tell a broader story of what it means to be human after this. Earlier in this episode, I told you about Oregon State University's eCampus, a nationally ranked provider of online education which helps you pursue your degree wherever you are. Your experiences and love for the outdoors make you an ideal future leader to preserve the trails you walk and make them a more equitable space. Oregon State has spent 150 years encouraging students to spend time outside, discovering new ways to positively impact the environment. With their eCampus classes, you can dive into the work you are passionate about from anywhere in the world. With a model that values your personal needs, it's no surprise that Oregon State eCampus is ranked number five in the nation by U.S. News & World Report, enjoying their sixth straight year in the top ten. Sign up for classes from over 70 different programs that will set you up for success, whether you selected a degree in gender studies, environmentalism, or anything in between. I know I look forward to seeing the change you enact in this world. Learn about Oregon State eCampus's nationally ranked online education and choose from over 70 programs by visiting ecampus.oregonstate.edu slash explore to find the program that's right for you. That's ecampus.oregonstate.edu slash explore. My absolute favorite thing to do is to go for a walk. I can be around my neighborhood or in a local state park. And while I walk, I often listen to music or a podcast. I do it a lot with rough drafts of this show, actually. And lately, I've been doing it with Raycon wireless earbuds. Raycon earbuds start at about half the price of any other premium wireless earbuds on the market. Their newest model, the Everyday E25 earbuds, are their best ones yet, with six hours of playtime, seamless Bluetooth pairing, more bass, and a more compact design that gives you a nice, noise-isolating fit. I can definitely be a slow adopter of technology, but I loved the Raycon wireless earbuds right away. They come in a beautiful little charging case and are so easy to connect to your phone. Mine fit nice and snug in my ears and stay in whether I'm running, hiking, or walking. Now's the time to get the latest and greatest from Raycon. Get 15% off your order at buyraycon.com explore. That's B-U-Y-R-A-Y-C-O-N.com, buyraycon.com explore for 15% off Raycon wireless earbuds. Buyraycon.com explore. We're back. Working in the criminal justice system, a big part of Ash's work is attention to detail. It's coupled with a deep appreciation for the uniqueness of people and their inherent value. This comes across in Ash's portrait photography, too. People will always say, oh, I'm not photogenic. Like, that is everybody's go-to. And I think what that really means, what that really translates to is I am uncomfortable with how the way I look will be perceived by others. I think that's what I am not photogenic really means. And so I think one of the best gifts that you can give people Because everybody is beautiful. Everybody is photogenic. And I think one of the best gifts that you can give people through photography is the ability to see themselves in a way that they can't when they look in a mirror or in a way that maybe they otherwise wouldn't. And I think, you know, when you have a camera and and you're photographing people, you're photographing anything really, what you're doing is bringing out the beauty in it. You're bringing to life an image of what that person looks like to you and how you see see that person or how you see 
that landscape or how you see that flower. So that's basically how I feel about photography. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm glad that you brought up the the people side of it, too, because um, looking through your portrait photography, especially through Discovering Gender Project, I really do see that and I see how comfortable the people look, you know, and it's partially because they're engaging and interacting with you, I would assume. I don't know. I don't I don't know how much I have to do with that, but I do know that there's sort of like a progression that I've noticed in people when you initially start to photograph them, um, you know, people tend to be uncomfortable in front of a camera. But I think if you let people, I don't give much direction when I photograph people. One of the things that I tell people is to just be in their body how they would naturally be in their body. I'm not going to ask you to do anything uncomfortable. If your normal stance is to stand with your arms crossed, if it's to stand with your hands in your back pockets, whatever is natural to you, however you naturally exist in the world, that's what I really want to bring out. That's what I really want people to see. You know, it's not it's not a, a fashion image. I'm not going to do anything crazy. Like what I'm trying to, especially when I'm photographing people for discovering gender, and, and this is very important, what I'm really trying to highlight is their underlying humanity. Hearing Ash describe their portrait philosophy, I can't help but think that one way to break down our implicit biases is to search for the beauty in people, especially if those people are different from ourselves. Discovering Gender is a nonprofit visual storytelling project that Ash and their wife Jess started, which highlights and advocates for trans and gender nonconforming individuals through photography and unedited written interviews. And that, you know, that's one of the reasons my wife and I started this project is because, especially for the people that are non-binary or gender non-conforming or that don't fit the traditional man-woman narrative, they don't, like, people that look like me, which I don't know, I mean, you've been to my Instagram page and there aren't very many pictures of me, but I do not fit a normal, I'm very androgynous in appearance. Name one character that looks like me on TV. Or, and, and, you know, you're seeing more trans representation on, like, Netflix and things like that. But, like, what about on your mainstream channels? Can you as a person remember your first conceptualization or your first contact with the word transgender? Most people, even if they've interacted with a trans person or a non-binary person or whatever it may be, don't realize that they have or don't know. There's just no representation out there. And so, like, when we started this project, it was really important to, to us to show like these are people that are vibrant parts of your, your communities every day and they are worthy of representation. They are worthy of being seen. They are worthy of having their stories told and they're worthy of feeling beautiful. Um, so everybody that we photographed through that project, I give them the photos. I give them all the photos that we use in the blog <laughs> um, and they can use them, you know, whatever. Use them as Christmas cards. I don't care. Um, but it's really just about that, like, you know, having a space to, to be seen as, as a human being. Because I think so, so often, like, we get so caught up in our labels, you know? Like, we get so caught up in labeling people. And like you said, we want to put people in boxes. And we forget to see that we all share the same underlying humanity, or at least I believe we do. Like we all share the exact same underlying humanity. And I think labels can be great for forming a sense of identity and finding your communities. But I think that labels can also be very divisive um, in how they're used. 
And so the thing that I really wanted to highlight through the project is this is not a transgender person. This is a person. They also happen to be transgender. They also happen to be non-binary. But this is also a person that contributes to a community. Um, and another part of it, too, is really like showcasing non-binary, trans, and gender non-conforming people uh, living successful lives. Because I wish I could tell you how many people have, like parents of transgender kids that have written us or transgender kids that have written us. I had, I remember one, I got a message on Instagram from a kid that was like, I wish that this had existed when I was in high school because I probably would have felt a lot safer. Mm. Or people that were, you know, people that are coming to terms with their own and, and you know, maybe it's a, a teenager, maybe it's somebody much older. They're coming to terms with their own sexuality or gender identity and they can see people like them. They can read stories of people who have been through similar things and, and, and they can see people like them in their own words, in their own way. We don't change those interviews at all. People fill, fill out those questionnaires and then we put it on the blog. So it's their, their own voice and it's not like watered down or changed or modified to fit any particular narrative. It's just their lived experience. So we wanted to create that space for people. That's cool. There's not a lot of places in life that there's that kind of openness or, you know, <laughs> ability to kind of share what you want to share. Well, and I think like one of the last questions that we ask people in the interview uh, is, is there anything else that you want to share with us that we haven't covered here? And that's just like a free space. Mm-hmm. Like you can say anything that you, you want to there. And with any of the questions, like, you know, we never ask like, why didn't you answer this or anything? There's, there's no pressure. Um, and I think that's especially important for non-binary and transgender people or just anyone that really falls out of like the, you know, traditional man, woman narrative. Um, there are very few spaces where you actually get to express yourself openly that feel safe. This is especially true, um, in certain conservative areas of like the rural, rural South or, you know, other places in the world that are more conservative, there are very few spaces, publicly available spaces, that transgender people or gender non-conforming people can just actually be who they are and express themselves in the way that feels most true to them. Um, and so when we were conceiving of the project, we wanted to try to be one of those. So um, what, have, what have you learned about yourself through working on this project? Always that I have more to learn. Always, always. Um, you know, there are conceptualizations of, of gender that I had never conceived of previously. There are an infinite number of ways to be human. And I think that, you know, through all the people that we've met and, and whatever, um, one of the things that I've learned is really, I don't know, like I said, it's just I have more, I have more to learn. There's, there's always more to learn. But it's really expanded my awareness of people and, and the things that they go through and, and the situations. And, and, you know, I kind of knew I have my own story. I was bullied really heavily all through high school and middle school and things like that. Because I've always, the way that I've always felt most at home in my own body, in my own skin, is with an androgynous appearance, with an androgynous name, etc. And so people don't respond well to that. Like, you know, I've seen doctors and things and they've been like, have you always been so androgynous? Hmm. I also learned how resilient 
not only I am, but so many LGBTQ people are. Especially LGBTQ people of color or LGBTQ people that occupy multiple areas of intersectionality. Um, you have to be very resilient to be yourself in this world um, openly in, in certain places. And um, I think that's, that's one of the most beautiful things about it is like the, the resilience that all of these people have. And something that I should have asked you, Ash, that I didn't ask you is what your, and I just assume because of what's written on the website, but what your pronouns are. Oh, I don't care. I'm totally pronoun different. Ah, okay. Yeah. Um, so, so to me, so there are things that I just personally don't label. My gender and sexuality are, are those. Um, they fall in that. I don't, I don't define those in any way at all because I personally don't feel a need to. Um, you know, if pressed to label my gender, I would say agender fits me the best because I don't necessarily feel a strong association with masculinity or with femininity or anything that we currently conceive of uh, in a gender binary. Um, I just pretty much feel like Ash. <laughs> That's pretty much it. And Ash, Ash is pretty neutral. And so I think a lot of times, like, labels exist for how, for other people to wrap their mind around what I am so the pronouns that you use have much more to do with your perception of me than my perception of myself like nothing offends me I don't care most people in my I was assigned female at birth and most people in my life like that I work with or even in my family call me she her and I am not in the slightest upset or offended by that but I've noticed and this is actually kind of a cool thing to see in public spaces these days I'm getting more and more they Mm. Like people are referring to me more frequently as they, which I think is awesome because that means we're cultivating awareness of pronouns um, in society. So I, I think that's great. I love that. Um, but also, and I've actually had a couple of people that I work with, which is great because I live in a pretty conservative area. I had a couple of people, people I work with ask me like what my pronouns are. And I love that. I love that when it happens. But mm-hmm. I've also seen a lot more of the use of the singular they, and that's fantastic. But also some people call me he and I don't correct any of it because, well, none of it bothers me. You know, I'm sure you're someone who's going to continue reflecting and evolving, you know, as you grow older, too. So it'll be interesting to ask yourself that question in, you know, 20 years. Yeah, it, it really will. Uh, it's it's interesting. It's it's so funny. Like, I don't know if you feel this. How old are you, if you don't mind me asking? I'm um, 34. Okay, yeah. So not that much younger than me. You're like four years younger than me. Um, <laughs> so you're in the vicinity. Mm-hmm. But it's, you know, it's, sometimes I feel like I've lived like four different lives already, just in terms of the way that I think and my life experience and things like that, just in, in terms of my own personal evolution. Um, and, you know, I think at the core, I've always just been different versions of essentially the same person. But I think one of the beautiful things about getting older that I'm finding is that I've come into myself wholly. Like, I, you know, when I was in like my late teens, like 18, early 20s, like whatever, um, it was very like outward focused, like how the world perceived me and, and, and things like that and, and seeking approval and, you know, there's insecurity in those ages, um, or at least there were for me. And then as I've gotten older, you know, I've kind of shed all those layers of conditioning and, you know, some of it is like doing some of the work that we've talked about today, like sitting with my own internalized homophobia, my own internalized biases 
well and internalized conceptualizations of gender and things like that and really kind of untangling those but at this point in my life I feel like I'm more holy myself than I have been at any point prior that's awesome yeah yeah no it is it's a it's a cool place to be you know but there's some there's some reveling and reckoning one must do (laughs) to get to that place some work involved Ash wants to make sure that as you dig in to learn more about implicit bias in the criminal justice system, that it's super important to learn from people of color. Ash recommends Bias by Dr. Jennifer Eberhardt, Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson, founder of the Equal Justice Initiative, and The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander. Ash also wants you to know that you can also reach out to them directly via their Instagram at Appalachian Explorer or also through their Instagram at Discovering Gender. You need more open conversation. I think the more that we shut ourselves down um, and we wall ourselves off from each other and the more that we get set in this debate mindset, you know, it's like it's that human aversion to being uncomfortable. It's like, oh, this conversation is uncomfortable. We must stop. No, this conversation is uncomfortable. This is how we grow. This is how we learn. But you have to be open to that process. And, you know, I'm always open to hear an opinion that's different from mine, respectfully stated. I'm always open to learn more about the world and, and, and the human beings around me. Um, and so I feel like if I have knowledge that I can share, then I'm absolutely happy to do that. Thank you so much to Ash for taking the time to talk. Ash also recommended some TED Talks to watch and learn through. All resources, as always, are linked in the show notes. Thanks to our sponsors, PeakSense, Oregon State University eCampus, and Raycon. You can find She Explorers on social media, our website, and wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find me on Instagram at Gail Straub. If you enjoy listening, there are different ways to support us. You can subscribe, leave a review, and share with a friend. And if you'd like to connect, join us in the She Explorers podcast Facebook group. Ad music in this episode is by Lee Rosevere. Josh Woodward, and Swelling using a Creative Commons Attributions License. She Explores is a production of Ravel Media released on Wednesdays. We're actually off next week to take a much-needed summer break, but we'll be back in two weeks with a very special episode. Until then, have fun out there.